<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is Thursday, June 1. Wake up and smell the kofefe, kofefe. Donald Trump tweeting again. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Thursday. Yes, June 1. I mentioned that. Uh, this is The Bill Press Show. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so good to see you today. How about it? Lots to talk about today. It is the day Donald Trump step out in the Rose Garden at 3 o'clock this afternoon and say that he has decided to follow Scott Pruitt and Steve Bannon over the cliff, take the United States over the cliff, and pull out of the Paris Accords on climate change, making us only the third country on the planet to do so. Two countries that have not signed, refused to sign, Nicaragua and Syria now joined uh, in such august company by the United States of America. What a resounding disgrace and embarrassment and disaster for the United States and for the planet. I told you we had lots to talk about today. Oh, man, we'll get into that with full force. And with all of you, looking forward to hearing from you, your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Send us your comments. So we know what you think about the news of the day. We'll be joined by Lizetto Campo from the People for the American Way, John Cookett from the Sierra Club to talk about the implications of pulling out of the Paris Accords, and the president of the American Federation of Government Employees, President J. David Cox, here in studio with us. Lots going on. We'll get right into it. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. This story is very messed up. Tonight <laughs> is game one of the NBA Finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. But LeBron James, star of the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, talked yesterday about a very troubling incident at his Brentwood home in Los Angeles. Somebody spray-painted a racial slur on the front gate of his house. This just sucks. This is terrible. And as he pointed out yesterday when he was speaking about it, it's a reminder, no matter how successful you are, yeah. no matter yeah. how talented you are or how far you get in life as a black person, you will always face that type of racism in it's America. It's disgusting. You may talk about this later. They found a noose in the African-American yeah. Museum in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. 
I mean, when you consider, if you put everything together, uh, the <laughs> rise in hate crimes, the uh, sort of graffiti and um, uh, vandalism taking place against places where a lot of people of color associate, right? Like, that's definitely on the rise. And we've got a president who really won't speak about it and won't address it and won't acknowledge it. It's kind of scary with what people are getting away with. Uh, we are a racist country. Yeah, there's no other way around it. We are. There's yeah. no other way around LeBron it. LeBron James talks about it. it. can happen to anybody. Look at Barack Obama. Look what happened for eight long years. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And who led the birther movement? <clears throat> Donald Trump. The president of the United States. Uh, you fly a lot. No, Donald Trump did. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> fair. Fair. <laughs> you fly a lot. You fly Southwest? Yeah. Uh, I do. I like Southwest. I, I usually fly Southwest up to Providence, Rhode Island. But, well, Southwest mm. is testing out a new deplaning process because getting off of an airplane is not the most uh, it's a, it's efficient. A, it's a pain in the ass All because right. people wait until the last minute to get their bag down. <laughs> They're idiots. Well, people, here's the thing. Okay. Southwest is testing a faster deplaning process. They've been trying this in Burbank. And what they do is they open the back door of the plane. So the back half of the plane. They used can, to do that all the time. Yeah, right. But they don't do it anymore. Nobody does it except for Southwest. They did it in Burbank. They tested it and had a lot of success. So the way that this works is you get off of a ramp on the back of the airplane, and then you go down to the tarmac, and then you have to walk sort of yeah. into the airport, which is not something that a lot of people are used I mean, to doing. Ser- seriously, this is back to the future. Yeah, right? I mean, in California, they... The, PSA and then uh, Western. That they did that for all the uh, commute flights. You could e- e- exit either way. You might see that coming to an airport near you. Uh, fi- frank- frankly, I follow the DB Cooper's example. <laughs> uh, that's the way I get out. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, hey, what do you say? Thursday, June 1. Good to see you today. It is the Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. And welcome, uh, welcome to our little town hall of the day with all the news of the day coming your way from, I sound like Jesse Jackson, from our studio on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C., with you on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And remember, we want to hear from you. Send us your comments on Twitter. Don't leave Twitter up to Donald Trump. Uh, you use it, too, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, and we're looking at you on Free Speech TV, talking to you with uh, all of your good friends out in Chicago on WCPT. And uh, we remind you again, if you haven't already done so, become one of our uh, followers, subscribers on Patreon, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, with lots of good stuff up there. Almost every day, new stuff, exclusive stuff, features uh, that we uh, have a chance to put together and send your way for a modest little monthly fee. Five bucks a month is what we're asking. Five bucks a month, you can access the content that we're putting up there. And if you weren't a $10 subscriber, which our $10 subscribers were able to watch the live stream with uh, the Reverend Barry Reverend Lynn Barry last week, we put it up this week so, for our $5 subscribers. It's a great conversation about religion and the religious right and the evangelicals that helped elect Donald Trump and how they're feeling about him now. Uh, and nobody knows that stuff better than, than frankly, you and Barry together. So uh, it's a great conversation. 
You got it. So with the news of the day, the big stories of the day include the fact that uh, Jeff Sessions, it looks like, may have had another secret meeting with the ambassador of Russia, Ambassador Kislyak, which he did not report. The FBI uh, reportedly is looking into that. The House Intelligence Committee has issued its first subpoenas uh, for people to appear before them. They are two of them are Michael Flynn and Michael Cohen the president's personal attorney, and, of course, his former national security advisor. So the Russian mess is not going to go away. Hillary Clinton says she's a victim, a victim of the DNC, among others, because the DNC didn't do its job. Uh, Yes, the DNC, which tried to undermine the Bernie Sanders campaign, while raising money for Hillary Clinton, now she's blaming the Hillary Clinton, uh, the DNC for her loss. And today at 3 o'clock, that's where we start Donald Trump stepping into the Rose Garden to uh, announce his intention on the Paris Accords. Uh, take it from here. Take it from Axios and Jonathan Swan, who broke the story first yesterday during our show. Donald Trump is going to announce today that the United States is withdrawing from the climate change agreement. This is freaking insane. It's the only word to describe it. Totally insane. Well, I guess you could describe it also as uh, ill-considered, unwise, childish, dangerous, so like Donald Trump. Now, you know, we shouldn't be surprised because this is Donald Trump who called this a bad deal. Uh, just like he called the Iran nuclear deal a bad deal. Um, He promised to withdraw from the Paris Accords. And um, he also said famously that uh, climate change is nothing but a hoax invented by the Chinese to give them an advantage in any trade deals with the United States. Uh, So even though it doesn't come as a total surprise, uh, it is still, no matter how long he's in the White House, and let's hope it's only a year at the most, Uh, this is the worst decision that Donald Trump will ever make because the consequences are so grave, so severe for the United States and for the planet. I mean, for the United States, because, look, this is a deal that took decades to make, right? Um, And by the way, this should not be, I want to say this right up front, this should not be a partisan issue. You know, George W. Bush believed in climate change. John McCain, remember? John McCain believed in climate change. Um, Mitt Romney believed in climate change. This, this, this saving the planet, right, should not be a partisan issue. But the United States, decades, uh, putting this, these Paris Accords together. In the end, the United States under Barack Obama and John Kerry was actually in the lead. And we got 195 nations together to sign this agreement. It only took effect in November 2016, less than a year ago. And already the United States is pulling out. And again, there are only two other countries that did not sign this agreement, Nicaragua and Syria. So now as the outsiders on the planet, you're going to have Nicaragua, Syria, and the United States of America. I mean, what does that say about the leadership of the United States what does that say about the um, cooperation and, and the commitment 
and the reputation of the United States of America. And by the way, we're the number one polluter, right? So we should be in the lead of cleaning up the planet. So the consequences of the United States, it makes us look like a giant international flake is exactly what it does, led by, by the way, a giant national flake, uh, namely, namely Donald Trump. Um, and remember, the, the second reason this is so insane is the consequences for the United States environment and economy and social order and national security are enormous. The Pentagon says, we talked about this yesterday with Kevin Barron from Defense One. The Pentagon has identified climate change as one of the greatest threats to our national security that exists because of the instability that climate change will create. Already in the United States, we're seeing the impact. 16 out of the last, 16 out of the 17 hottest years on record occurred have, uh, since 2001. So this isn't, this isn't, global warming is not anything, any, any longer something that we have to worry about happening in the future. No, it's happening it's here. now. Yeah. It is here. It is real. And it is serious. Look at all the extra, the, 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 incre- the, uh, the increased cases of flooding that we've had. Look at all the, the, the increased storm activity we've had, increased tornado activity. Uh, which climatologists say is largely due to climate change. Look at the the disappearance of the glaciers, the disappearance of the sheets of ice in the uh, Antarctic and in Greenland, the ice ice pack uh, up in the Arctic. It's happening all around us. We can see it. The rise in sea levels. Sea level has risen twice the rate that it did before 1990. Uh, And we already have communities. There are islands in the Pacific that have already disappeared. Island, little island, and there's an island nation down there. It's a very funny name, Kerepiat or something like that, where communities have already disappeared. In this country, in Alaska, remember Alaska is part of the United States. In Alaska, there's one village up there that has already moved to, to the mainland, because they're going to be underwater and they've already lost so many homes. Look at Miami, flooding in the streets every day. The, the, probably the, the, the place that's the most threatened of all in the United States is our huge naval base and installation in Norfolk, Virginia. This is happening. This is real. And Donald Trump is going in the exact opposite direction refusing to recognize it's a problem, ignoring it, and pulling out of the Paris Accords. One of the, one of the things that I always point to when we talk about this is because you're right. Miami is dealing with this problem. Uh, Norfolk is dealing with this problem. Charleston. Uh, Charleston. The, yeah. the, new, nope. the new-ish mayor, uh, his number one goal is we've got to take care of the flooding in the streets because when it rains heavily, right, the sea levels are so high that it floods the streets of Charleston. You look at Louisiana. Right, everybody knows and has a has an idea in their head of what Louisiana looks like, right? Because that's how we learned it when we were growing up. But if you were to look at it now, that entire <laughs> bottom half of Louisiana, which was a coastal area, mm-hmm. it's it looks completely different now because so much of those wetlands and so much of that that sort of swampy area has just been covered with water now, and that's here at home. And so you're right, like, when you talk about some of these far-off countries that are dealing with it, 
it's maybe hard for some people who only look at the news here at home to get that, but like it, it is happening here. Well, uh, I saw this last night during a little research. You figure that one half of the world's population, like three billion people, live within two hundred meters, two hundred kilometers of a coastline. So you're talking colossal economic disruption once uh, once climate change, once the sea levels really start hitting urban areas. You know, they already have started, but with, a, with even a more serious impact and people having to abandon certain areas. So I was on CNN International yesterday uh, on a program up in New York, and we talked a little bit about this. Uh, and there are a couple of Trumpers on the, on the panel. So the Trumpers, the Trumpers' arguments are, first of all, this is by, by getting, getting out of uh, uh, Paris, the Paris Accords, this is going to save, they say, 6 million jobs. You know, that's total baloney. Total baloney. You know what they, they, they say? These, jobs, these are going to be jobs in the fossil fuel industry and, in the, and coal. The coal miners are going to get their jobs back. No, they're not. It's not the environmentalists that are hurting the coal miners. It's natural gas that has put the coal miners out of business, and those jobs are not coming back. And Donald Trump is just anybody, and Donald Trump or anybody else who says they are is just lying to them. So there's, there's six million jobs. But think about the jobs, the millions of jobs that are going to be lost in the tourist industry, in the fishing industry, uh, in all coastal-related uh, I- I- industries. When when, when this sea level occurs and 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 I mean and and also the jobs in agriculture right as crops change or crops disappear I mean it is going to be colossal environmental damage uh, the other argument they make is well Donald Trump made this promise to his base he promised his base he would get out of Paris and so he has to do this because he promised his base you know what that is the most empty-headed argument I've ever heard. I know. So we no longer, we no longer uh, pay any attention to, or any consideration to, what's the right in, in whatever the policy is. What's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? What's the best thing for America? And what's going to really hurt America? No. Instead, we base it all on a political, empty political argument. Did he make this promise during this campaign? Well, then he has to do it. That is so idiotic. And I said this. I'll say it again today. I care more about my kids and my grandkids uh, than I do about Donald Trump's damn base, the idiots who voted for him. And you know what? I care more about their kids and their grandkids than I do about those idiots and his so-called base. Uh, it's just, it, it, I'm telling you, the worst decision Donald Trump will make, no matter how long he's in the White House, he'll make it today. He hasn't said it yet, but if indeed he does what everybody expects him to do, which is pull out the climate accords, and it looks like this is a huge victory for Scott Pruitt. You, you knew this was going to happen once he appointed Scott Pruitt at EPA, the guy who sued EPA, what, 13 or 14 times and has been the arch enemy outside of James Inhofe, the most outspoken opponent of, uh, of climate change, doing anything about that. Climate change denier, now head of the EPA. So this is Scott Pruitt and Steve Bannon yeah, who have pushed him to do this. And by the way, so much for the influence of Ivanka Trump. Yeah, his daughter who has said, Daddy, you got to stay in Paris. It's going to look bad if you get out. Uh-uh. 
apparently, he's going to go with Bannon and Pruitt and not them. There's only one saving grace, and I'm just going to say there's one little sliver of silver lining on this dark cloud, and that is the states and the cities are not going to go along with this. Yeah. And now, to the extent they can, take Jerry Brown in California. You know, he is Mr. Climate Change. He's not going to go along with this stuff. They're not going to relax their standards in California. Uh, and uh, there are many, many cities and states that have already come out and said the same thing. They'll keep the movement alive, but it's still going to be very, very uh, big step backwards when the United States pulls out. You know, we we started the show talking about what a racist country this was. And I think that all you have to do, and this isn't overt racism necessarily, but all you have to do is look at how the Trump administration is leading. They're not leading with ideas. They're not leading with solutions. They're leading by saying, that guy wanted to do this, Mm -hmm. and we're going to do something completely different. He can't stand on the merits of pulling out of the climate accords. He can't stand on that. He can't make an argument as to why that's a good idea. All he can say is, I ran on this. I said I was going to do it because my predecessor, Barack Obama, thought it was a good idea. And I'm going to get rid of it. And people say, oh, Obama liked it. It must have been a bad idea. Yeah, right. Uh, and, so and by the way, everybody that's but, everybody that's lining up to defend Donald Trump pulling out of this, and there have been plenty of Republicans, they, none of them can stand on the merits of it. They all no. say the same thing. Yeah, he promised his base. Yeah, he told his base he was going to do this. He has to follow through. That's so idiotic. Let me just, I, I, you know what? Here, here's, a, here's a plea. If you ever hear me say, that Democrats have to do something because, name a name, Hillary Clinton promised it or Bernie Sanders promised it, or rather than this is the right thing to do and yeah. here's why. If you ever hear me say that, shoot me, okay? <laughs> I don't want to be around. I don't, seriously. You've I lost it. I don't even want to exist. <laughs> no, no, shoot me. Get me out of here. No, that is so idiotic. It's embarrassing for anybody to make that argument. By the way, 70% of Americans agree on staying in the Paris Accords again. That 30% Donald Trump's base. Uh, How am I doing? Am I doing? Okay, I'm president. Hey, I'm president. Mm -hmm. Can you believe it? Don't remind me. Oh, man. Uh, So that's going to happen at 3 o'clock today. We're going to talk more about that with um, the head of the Sierra Club, uh, the climate policy director of the Sierra Club, a little bit later in the program. We want to hear from you again, your comments. Is this the right thing to do or not, and why not? Uh, Send us your comments on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. Meanwhile, um, we talked a little bit about this yesterday. There's another big decision Donald Trump has coming up, which is not getting any attention and should get a lot of attention. Uh, and that is, it looks like Donald Trump is about to send three to 5,000 more American troops, although we're not going to call them combat troops, are we, even though they're going into a combat area? No, we won't call them combat troops. We will call them advisors to Afghanistan. Tell me why. Again, (laughs) the Trumpers will say, well, because he promised he was going to be tough on terror, and so therefore he gets away with anything. This is, again, idiotic. I can't understand it. I mean, this the the Vietnam War lasted eight years. Afghanistan is now, but we've been there for 16 years. Afghanistan is, I double-checked last night, Afghanistan and Iraq together are costing us $5 billion dollars a month. 
Why aren't the American people out in the streets protesting this the way they protested and brought an end to the war in Vietnam? And if we think that we can, that we, there's still a chance to so-called win the war in Afghanistan, it is absolutely crazy. Again, haven't we learned? The British learned the lesson. Russians learned the lesson before us. Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. There has never been a strong central government in Afghanistan. Never in the history of humankind. And if we think by staying there and pumping money and troops and American blood into Afghanistan that we're going to change that history, we are just kidding ourselves. And we've been doing that for 16 years. It's really just time to pull up our boots and get the hell out of Afghanistan. Yeah. But watch. And by the way, this is not this is not a criticism of Donald Trump alone. I said the same thing about Barack Obama. I'm saying it about Donald Trump. Barack Obama did a troop surge in 2010. It didn't work. Barack Obama did a troop sur- another troop surge in 2011. It didn't work. Donald Trump is about to do a troop surge in Afghanistan. It will not work. It's time to get out of there. Uh, and watch that decision because that decision is coming soon. And, of course, the Pentagon is asking for more troops, three to 5,000. Um, my guess is Donald Trump is going gonna, is gonna to give it to them uh, <clears throat> on that issue. Uh, back to Russia. Russia hasn't gone away. By the way, uh, they are trying to, uh, trying to put it aside. In fact, yesterday when uh, Sean Spicer, at, it was an off-camera, just a gaggle, he was asked, well, first question, something about Jeff Sessions and Russia uh, and Sean Spicer um, saying, no, 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 we don't ask questions. We don't answer questions about Russia anymore. Uh, our job, uh, we are focused on the president's agenda and all going forward, all questions on these matters will be referred to outside counsel Mark Kasowitz. Ah, uh, that's it. So here no we go. Spicer. Here we go. Yes, indeed. Uh, Richard Nixon is back. Out- our job. Mm-hmm. Outside counsel, outside counsel to handle all the Russian questions. Uh, but the R- Russia came back with a vengeance yesterday, the Russian investigation. Uh, twofold. Number one, uh, it was uh, reported that uh, Jeff Sessions may be in a little more hot water. It, remember, there was the one meeting with Ambassador Kislyak that he had failed to disclose. It turns out there may have been yet a second meeting uh, between Jeff Sessions and Ambassador Kislyak that he also failed to disclose. Uh, well, let's remind you, he is the Attorney General of the United States of America uh, and uh, also the man who promised to recuse himself from the Russian investigation and then fired the head of the investigation, uh, Director James Comey. So uh, Jeff Sessions in a little more hot water. Uh, and also the House Intelligence Committee under its new chair, Republican chair, and uh, ranking Democrat Adam Schiff issued their first subpoenas yesterday to get people to testify in front of them, including Michael Flynn, former National Security Advisor, who had said originally he was not going to cooperate with Congress. Uh, he was trying to get a deal, remember? He wanted to get uh, immunity, which they rejected. Uh, we haven't heard his response to the subpoena, but that subpoena was issued yesterday. Also, a subpoena issued yesterday to Michael Cohen, who is Donald Trump's, another one of his personal attorneys who was uh, allegedly involved in the Russian uh, connections with Russians and uh, may, may, may have been 
involved in any collusion if there was collusion. Uh, and the third um, little bomb to drop yesterday, if you will, uh, on the Russian front is that uh, James Comey has now agreed to testify publicly probably as early as next week before the Senate Intelligence Committee about Donald Trump's calling him in and asking him, confirming publicly that Donald Trump did call him in and did ask him to drop the FBI investigation. In other words, Comey testifying publicly that Donald Trump, yes, indeed, did try to obstruct justice. Where does that go? We don't know, but that will be, uh, as I saw someone yesterday, I think it was David Shalian on CNN said, get your popcorn ready because that is going to be a public hearing unlike any other that we have seen in a long time. You know, you, you made this point a couple of times. Nothing is going to happen to Donald Trump until the Republicans can stand up and say, this has gone on for too long. This has gone too far. This is too much. And it's... You know, it's easy for the Trump administration because of a lot of different reasons, right? Like the flurry of news that comes out and just the manner in which they run the White House. It's easy for them to sort of duck and dodge and get away from these stories. But when you have a guy like James Comey mm-hmm. publicly, where we're all watching what he says, we can all hold our elected officials accountable. And that's where things that's that is sort of a game changer. I know it doesn't seem like a big, big deal. But when it's out there in the open and we all know what he said and we all know what he's telling us and there's no hiding behind it or covering uh, uh, it up or yeah, sources yeah. say this or sources say that, we get it straight from the horse's mouth. Straight from the source's mouth. Yes, right. <laughs> there's uh, no hiding behind that, no. which is something that the Trump administration is very, very good at doing. They can hide from things. They can't hide from this. Yeah, can't hide from this. And uh, if there's anybody who has a good reputation intact today, it is former FBI Director James Kofefe. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, so uh, Sean Spicer did get the question yesterday about what the hell was Trump doing when he said, talked about the incredibly bad Kofefe. Uh, Sean Spicer, seriously, seriously, this is his answer. The president and a small group of people know exactly what he meant. Ooh, what? what? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, what is he on. talking about? Why couldn't he have just said, look, raise your hand here who has never had somebody who has never had a misspelling on Twitter, right? Raise your hand. This has never happened to anybody here. Obviously, this is what happened. He meant to say coverage and go back. Instead, oh, the pre- it's a conspiracy. The president and just a small group of people do what he was talking There's about. efficiencies, duplicity. <laughs> like, so, how stupid so, do they think we are? Like, even Trump with his tweet yesterday. Good luck so, figuring out what that meant. Enjoy. So, so lame. So lame. I'm telling you, yes. All right. Uh, speaking of something else so lame, I just got to get this in. Uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, speaking at a conference, a recode conference out in Palos Verdes, California yesterday. Uh, she was asked about why did you give those speeches to Goldman Sachs when you knew you were going to run for president. If you want to know why Hillary Clinton lost the campaign, here's one reason. Here's the question and her response. Goldman Sachs. Yeah. You knew you were going to run for president or you thought you might or probably you were thinking about it. You had to be thinking about it as a possibility. Why did you do those? I, I don't. I don't. Why do you have Goldman Sachs here? 
because they pay us. They, they paid me. Yeah, no, but there's a... <laughs> yep, I gave those speeches because they paid me. There you go, folks. Just think go about away, that. Go away, go away, go away, go away, go away. Just think about that. Yes, I knew I was going to run for president. I knew it would look bad, but they were paying me. So, of course, I would do it because I wanted the money. Enough said. No commentary necessary. <laughs> uh, so how do we get out of this mess Democrats are in? Uh, who's leading the resistance? Well, people for the American way, among others. Lizette Ocampo, political director for People for the American Way. Joining us next on The Bill Press Show. How am I doing? Am I doing okay? I'm president. Hey, I'm president. Can you believe it, right? Download our podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. On a Thursday, June 1, hello everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the program, the Bill Press Show, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, right here, right just down the street from the United States Capitol building. Brought to you today by the Ameri- by I'm sorry, Amalgamated Bank. Yes, indeed. You want a bank? With progressive values, that's amalgamated for almost a century now. It's been the bank of choice for uh, progressive organizations and individuals nationwide. Uh, so we invite you to check out the website, amalgamatedbank.com. doesn't matter where you live in this country. We all bank online anyhow these days. Uh, go to Amalgamated, check them out, and sign up. And we thank them for their support of the program. Uh, it is... Um, a pleasure to welcome to the studio. We're all talking about how the Democrats rebound. What are Democrats going to focus on? What should the priorities be? Uh, People for the American Way organization has been around a long time doing great work. Uh, Lizetto Campo is the political director, new political director for People for the American Way in studio with us. Hi, Lizette. Nice to see Thanks you. Thanks for having me. We want to get right to all of that. We have been talking about uh, mainly about the president's expected announcement today to pull out of the Paris Accords. Uh, and a couple of comments to uh, from our listeners and viewers before we move on. Yeah, we are at BP Show, at BP Show on Twitter. Jim weighs in, says there are far too many science deniers playing with the rest of our futures, which is pretty accurate. Phil says... By the way, is- I, I, I issue a challenge. Go ahead. My challenge is, you show me one scientist who says climate change is a hoax or that yeah. doesn't believe in climate change, who is not on the em- employment, on, on the payroll on the of payroll, an oil yeah. company or a coal company or a utility, you know, I'll buy you dinner at the Palm. <laughs> Here you go. That scientist does not exist. Uh, Phil and a couple of other people call, uh, tweeted in to say that note that Nicaragua did not sign the Paris Agreement because it didn't go far enough. That's uh, why Nicaragua point. didn't good sign point. the Paris Agreement, because it didn't do enough. So realistically, that just leaves us and Syria, <laughs> <laughs> the people who, uh, who, who, didn't, uh, mm-hmm. who, who didn't sign it. And uh, from Andrew Einhorn says, your opening climate comments are totally correct about the self-serving rat bastard little Donnie. So just let that comment stand on its own. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be watching at 3 o'clock this afternoon. We know... We think we know what's going to uh, happen. 
Boy, Lizette, where do we start? Well, let's start. What do you think? What is so people of the American way or PFAL? Um, what should the focus be of the Democratic Party? How do we rebuild? How do we bounce back? What are you doing? Well, we saw that there was a lot of energy after Donald Trump won um, for people coming out of the woodwork wanting to run for office on the state and local level. And we've seen um, in the last eight years um, Democrats lose over a thousand seats on the state and local level as well. So there's this big need um, for investment um, uh, for candidates who are running, uh, progressive candidates who are running. And so we want to invest in young progressives running on the state and local level. We launched the Next Up Victory Fund um, last week. We had um, Leader Pelosi join us, Keith Ellison. So, so, so it's called Next Up Victory Fund. That's correct. Okay. All right. Yes. Um, Lita and, Pelosi and who yes, else? Yes, um, Congressman Keith Ellison, Congressman Joaquin Castro, and our board member, Kazir Khan, um, the, the father of the fallen soldier as mm. well, mm-hmm. um, joined us for our launch um, with many uh, young young electeds, um, young uh, activists, um, partners from the progressive movement, the, the labor unions, um, the women's groups, um, people from all over the spectrum who want to band together to support um, candidates on the state and local level. You know, it's going to be extremely important, obviously, for the progress that we see in the states. Um, obviously, there's a different strategy when it comes to federal progress, um, but we also need to focus on state progress, um, but also redistricting in 2020. So we're really focused on states where we need to win back state legislatures in order to have a seat at the table when it comes to redistricting. And obviously, the governor's races are going to be extremely important for that all as right. well. So are you active in uh, what states? All, um, all 50 states, or are you just going to target uh, certain states? Yeah, so we, um, we will uh, support champions anywhere, um, but we are targeted in the states um, where redistricting, where we can win back state legislatures, and where it's going to be important for redistricting. Um, so that's that's what we're focused on. And um, how many of those states do you know, or have you yes. decided? And where, where are you? <laughs> yes, um, it's about fifteen states. Um, we're in states like Colorado, where we're very close um, in winning back the state legislature. There, um, we're in states like Nevada, where we just did that, and we need to protect and hold those uh, seats. Um, and so we're really in um, state legislatures across the country. So you've looked at states where you're close enough that with a little e- extra effort, you think you can get the state legislature uh, yes. back? Yes. So it's states where we're close enough and then also states where it's going to take a few cycles, mm-hmm. um, but targeted for hopefully um, for after 2020 that we can have um, uh, takeover in those states. Right. Well. Uh, and are you recruiting candidates or, um, or just... Or finding candidates. How does yeah, that process work? Um, a little bit of both, but mainly working on our partner with our partners to find candidates who are already running for office. And our goal is to help them win. So we want to give them money. Obviously, money is extremely important, um, especially for viability of young candidates. Um, we want to um, help them with their um, validation and amplification. So um, help them with press, help them people get to know who they are, bring surrogates to them. Um, we have a lot of surrogates within our network. As you've mentioned, we've been around. Um, for many, many years since the 80s, um, Norman Lear, the TV producer, started, founded our organization, is still very much involved. So we have a lot of connections to, to influencers who would like to get involved and like to support state and local candidates, so we'd like to connect them. And then we also want to connect um, our candidates to to our donors. Um, you know, it's really important for young candidates to have that type of network. Um, we really want to be there to help them win and go deep in supporting them and helping them win. You do training for these candidates? We will do some training um, as well uh, for the candidates, yes. This is so important. This is so, so, oh, yeah. so it's important. And it, and it highlights, uh, like, a disconnect that Democrats <laughs> have had for the last 
10 years, eight years at least, with Barack Obama. Everybody was so excited about getting Barack Obama in as president, and that was a great and big win for Democrats. But, like, there are a lot of things that we just forgot about, and the bench is not very deep. And you look at candidates on the state level that just couldn't compete for a lot of different reasons. Democrats weren't fighting for the redistricting. And there are a lot of different reasons that they just got forgotten and left behind. And this is really, really important. When people talk about impeaching Trump, right, whether or not that happens, I think largely depends on if the Democrats get the House back in 2018. And at the rate that we're going, there's no way we're going to get the House back in 2018. It's just not going to happen unless we really put in the footwork uh, to get it done. So let me ask you this. Um, do you, you mentioned that we lost uh, close to 1,000, if not maybe a little over, state legislative seats in the last eight years. Um, it's about um, 950. Um, okay. But if you add the federal offices, it's about over 1,000. All right. Uh, over the last eight years, Barack Obama was president, was head of the Democratic Party. This happened under his watch. So what is he doing now to um, maybe get some of those seats back? Well, there's a lot of um, things we could discuss in terms of what resulted in those losses. Um, but I think um, Barack Obama is definitely committed. Um, it's one of his top issues post-election or post-presidency <laughs> um, is he's committed to engaging um, young leaders in, in civic civic engagement. And he's also really involved with um, redistricting and supporting leaders um, when it well, relates I know to redistricting. He's, I, uh, yeah, I know you don't, you're <laughs> not here to speak for him. But I'm just making the point. I hear him say that. I haven't seen any sign of activity at all. He's been moving around, giving some speeches. But, I mean, you're out there. Emily's List is out there. You know, um, Town Hall is out there. What is the town? Yeah, Town Town, town Hall Project. Town yeah, Hall town Project, Project is out there. Indivisible is out there. You know, I, I don't see well, Barack I Obama think, out there. I think, you know, what we're so, we just saw actually yesterday – um, the the announcement that the vice president is going to start his own action fund, um, America and uh, uh, I think it's promises. You're talking uh, about our vice president Joe Biden. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> vice president Joe Biden. Thank you. Um, yes, and I think I think that post presidency, his team is working. Barack Obama's team is working really hard on the foundation on figuring out what the next steps are. Um, obviously, the president took a little break, um, but I but I think that we'll be seeing more more engagement from him on on these things. Um, but uh, I think it, it took a little bit of time to get set up, but uh, um, I can expect seeing more engagement. All right, now, so some of the first ones out of the box uh, were some special no, – these are congressional races, but you're also going to be looking at some congressional races as well, correct? We also or have are a – Are you really strictly focused on state legislative? So for Which next is fine up, if you are. <laughs> no, <laughs> Next Up Victory Fund actually focuses on – um, state and local races, so not just state legislatures, but also other local races, municipal, mm. school board. These are the folks that could run for uh, the state legislative races and then run for Congress after that. I mean, that's something that we really want to focus on is a long term. So obviously immediate, immediate returns, but also a long term investment on building the bench. And um, we also have a uh, federal say, That's the key yes. word is bench, yeah. bench, bench. The Democratic <laughs> Party today does not have a bench. 
Yes, and you know, we actually, this is our C4 program that we're started, but we've had a C3 program, um, the Young Elected Officials Network, that has supported um, young elected officials for 15 years. And actually, one of our favorite stories, um, the Castro brothers were part of our first class 15 is years that right? ago. Yeah. Um, well, so the idea right. is to, you know, invest in those types of leaders who we know are going to continue to be engaged in public service and Absolutely. who are important um, to invest in. No, so. And there are more people than ever before, as you pointed out, after the Women's March, after the Climate March, right, who's after Donald Trump's election, who say, man, I've got to, I want to do my share. You know, I want to get out there. I want to run. I want to serve, uh, which is great. And school board, city council, county exactly. supervisor, you know, whatever. Uh, and and then state legislature and, and, and on up. Yeah, right. statewide um, elected office, um, you know, um, and like you said, federal. We have um, a, a federal pack as well, the Voters Alliance pack for federal candidates. So this Next Up Voter Fund, is that what you call it? Next, next up, up Victory Fund. Sorry, mm-hmm. Next Up Victory Fund. Uh, is there, do you have a website? Yes, um, it's pfaw.org slash next up. Okay. We'll tweet P- that out, by the way. P-F-A-W, P-F-A-W, P-F-A-W dot org slash next up, right? Mm-hmm. Got it. Uh, next up. All right. So I sort of say um, one of the first um, contests right out of the box, uh, the first three or four, Kansas. Democrats didn't even play. We lost. Um, Georgia. John Ossoff didn't win the primary, but he's still got a shot now, and that's up um, in a week or so, right? 20th. June 20th. Is that what it is? June mm-hmm. 20th. Montana. Early vote already started, though. It has, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Montana. Nice. Rob Quist with some help from Bernie Sanders, but didn't make it. What happened in Montana? Well, what we've seen actually is a huge, uh, even though we did not win those elections, we've seen a, a big momentum shift. Um, in Montana, uh, think about it. We just had this election um, this month, and the, the presidential election wasn't too long ago. Trump won Montana by 20 percentage points. And Quist lost by about six. So there's been a huge um, shift happening there. Obviously, in Montana, um, there, you know, there was that last minute um, situation of the Republican candidate who body slammed a reporter um, allegedly, but he also got charged for it. So I think we can say that he did that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yeah, he just went ahead and did that. Yeah, no, he did. There's also a recording of it. We got tape recording, right. Um, But he also lied about it. Um, too. So there was a lot, you know, going on. Early vote had already been going on. Some reports said that half um, to two thirds of voters had already voted. Um, but we did see um, a, a big narrowing of the gap there in Montana. Um, so it actually does play into um, what we're seeing. And in Georgia, the fact that um, the fact that Ossoff almost won um, on the, in the primary is incredible. It's I mean, nuts. this is, this is yeah, yeah. so the fact that he is this competitive um, on this election. Um, is, 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 you know, it's something that um, only this type of energy that we've seen post-election could have supported. So um, it's it, it looks like, you know, he is doing well there. Um, but, you know, it's a tough district. It's um, traditionally Republican district. So we'll see. At the same time, there's nothing like a win. Right. And yes, in the so end, we're hoping for an Ossoff win, <laughs> you know, particularly in politics. Uh, this is not horseshoes. Right. Close doesn't count. Wins count. But 
what? I'll tell you about wins. In the state legislature, we've had wins. Um, and we recently saw uh, two wins. Um, in New York, we had a win that, that took back the state legislature there. Um, and we um, also saw a win in Delaware, the one of the first uh, state legislative races that mm-hmm. we've seen. Um, and we saw a win in New Hampshire as well. We took back a seat. Um, so we have been seeing wins on the state legislative level on the special elections. Right. Omaha. That was a, that was a case where, uh, for, in a mayor's race, a progressive um, didn't make it. Um, and the, uh, another issue, obviously, involved involved there. And we're seeing, actually, a lot more investment on the municipal, municipal races, as you said. There's a bigger focus on what's going on um, on these mayor's races, um, city councils, and that sort of thing. So I think that there's um, the infrastructure is sort of catching up to the energy. What contribution uh, or is Bernie Sanders making to all of this? Um, and, and what role do you see that he, sh- he plays or should play? Well, he has been going out on the stump for candidates, um, supporting them. Uh, he also has his own uh, his organization, Our Revolution, who are partners of Next Up Victory Fund. They? Yeah. Um, and they've been great. And they have their own. They just an, uh, announced their full slate of candidates that they're supporting. Um, and so they've been very engaged. Um, and, and I was thinking about it. We haven't seen something like this in quite some time in terms of having that guidance from either Next Up Victory Fund, from Our Revolution, from other organizations who are part of our partners um, who are really invested in trying to get out the word about these state and local candidates. Um, so, yeah, so he, I, that's the engagement I've seen his team um, be engaged in. Right. Uh, and they so uh, our revolution, his organization, um, ha- has a slate of candidates that they've mm-hmm. endorsed for um, and uh, in many races around the country. We should get that list, too. Yeah, sure. Uh, Absolutely. Or, or Peter. Now, you, you mentioned um, you used to work in immigration issues, yes. correct? Mm-hmm. So um, immigration issues are still a big issue. And uh, often when there's legislation pending either at the state or the local level or the federal level in immigration issues, there are protesters who turn up, uh, as just happened recently at the Texas State House, with an unusual uh, twist to that protest, um, where one state legislator actually called ICE to go after the protesters. Yes. So it was, uh, yeah, and, it, and it's not only that he called ICE against protesters, but then he went on the floor and... I mean, were they, were they con- uh, committing violence? I mean, were they... Trashing the state house, or what was it? So issue these were here? peaceful protesters, um, and I guess because they looked Hispanic, he thought he would call ice on them. It's something that's extremely um, disrespectful. It is um, int- well. It is also trying to intimidate um, protesters who are, you know. You doing their right or expressing their right of freedom of speech and against the legislation that the legislature passed. Um, so to to call ICE on them is really a tactic that tries to target um, the protester instead of talking about the issue and why they supported it. And actually, it's really a visualization of what's underneath all of this. And this this hatred of. Latinos and Mexicans is a hatred of the other. 
And um, it's really an unfortunate incident. And what happened is he went up to uh, some um, Hispanic legislators on the floor, legislatures on the floor, and told them, oh, by the way, I called ICE on the protesters. So that resulted in a scuffle um, on the floor mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, apparently he, like, threatened to shoot someone, turned into this whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it was, <laughs> yeah, um, there's video of this as well. Um, and it's, it's very concerning because um, it's very disrespectful and it's, it's a, a tactic to intimidate um, a whole community. Well, what stuns me is that ICE would even respond. I mean, if there's a, somebody hit, hits up a, a local 7-Eleven or something, right? You call the police, right? If you called the Secret Service, they would say, no, that's not our job. That's not our territory. We don't have. And do you think that in this case, ICE would say, oh, there's a protest at the state house? No, no, no. That's not our responsibility, right? That's yeah. the, as far either as the I state know. police mm-hmm. or the local police or whatever. There's security forces at the state house if, if they were, in fact, causing any problem, which it sounds to me like they were not, other than they happen to have come, some of them, from Mexico. And, and as far as I know, ICE didn't show up at that moment. Um, but it, it's about the intimidation of him saying that he called ICE or telling yeah, right, protesters. Right. So that making them fear speaking up and, right. you know, making them fear, you know, uh, expressing their, you know, their their right of freedom of speech. And a lot of them um, are U.S. citizens. A lot of them, you know, may come from immigrant families. And it's um, definitely um, very uncalled for. But, but you know, ICE has been going around and um, detaining people in places that you know, are, are places you wouldn't expect for them to. So it's, it's, it's a very scary thing um, for anyone who has an immigrant family member um, to hear that. You know, and Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, mm-hmm. but you know, we, we talked a lot about the outrageous cruelty of self-deportation, right, where, which is essentially where you make life so hard for undocumented people here in the country that they just would rather leave. And I think what we're seeing here is something actually far worse than just self-deportation because it's 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 a, a, an aggressive crackdown from ICE and things like that. And also just making it so impossible to live here as a, an undocumented uh, uh, person because, like you said, the constant threat of like, well, you do one wrong thing or one thing that I don't even like. That doesn't have to be wrong, but one thing that I disagree with, I'll call ICE. And separate you from your family. And there are numerous stories of people who have lived here for decades, decades. Mm -hmm. And because now we live in this new reality, they're being sent back. Anything happened to this state legislator? Was he reprimanded or uh, or starting uh, a fight on the floor? And uh, so and far, I have not seen any accountability of this. And not only that, he um, also went online and recounted his side of the story, which does not sound like a very accurate um, uh, accurate portrayal of what his side of the story is. Remind me a lot about what happened in Montana. Um, so it's it's very concerning. There does need to be, you know, these types of actions do need to be held accountable. And hopefully the civic engagement that's happening um, and, uh, you know, awareness of what the state legislature is doing in a state where, you know, Hispanics and Mexicans were there before Texas was Texas. Um, so, you know, it's it's really 
Um, you know, hopefully, you know, we've we've seen and we've talked about Texas in terms of investing in it. And there's a huge potential um, there. And there needs to be increased engagement from the Latino community. We have a Latinos vote program at People for the American Way as well. Um, and so hopefully, you know, he will be held accountable. Um, but what we saw in this Texas state legislature in general, the fact that they passed this legislation. So this is over legislation um, that essentially says it's anti-sanctuary city, but basically that makes it so that um, cities have to um, turn immigrants over to um, to federal immigration authorities, but it also empowers local law enforcement to essentially inquire about immigration status to anyone they stop. So mm. any police officer can just, you know... Uh, it's almost a stop and frisk, but just for Latinos, huh? And it's very, and it's very, and it leads to a lot of racial profiling. There's been a lot of research that shows that. And essentially, anyone they think that could be undocumented, um, if they stop them for like a traffic light or anything like that, they can um, sort of, uh, sort of ask them those questions. And and so it turns into something very concerning. You know, we saw actually in Florida recently there was a guy who was on his bicycle and got hit by a car, and the police officer who was called to help him, actually asked him about his immigration status before he helped him um, when, during his accident. That's the most important thing. Um, before so, I uh, do CPR here, I need to know. Um, yes. Uh, may I see your papers, please? Yes, yes. So mm-hmm. this entanglement of local law enforcement with federal immigration enforcement no. is really concerning, and it causes yes. a lot of issues. Absolutely. People for the American Way is the organization, and the website is pfaw.org slash victory fund. Slash next up. I'm sorry. Slash next up. Slash next up. We'll have it on the website so you can get it right, even if I didn't. Lizette Ocampo, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Good work. Keep it up. Thank you. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Three o'clock today, we'll find out what President Trump intends to do about Paris, which we think will be running away from it. A disaster. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Thursday, June 1. This is The Bill Press Show, and it's great to see you today. Thank you for joining us as we tackle the big stories of the day, not just uh, the climate change story, but also Jeff Sessions in trouble again for yet another, it appears, meeting with uh, Ambassador Kislyak that he failed to divulge. Uh, the House Intelligence Committee issuing its first subpoenas yesterday, and James Comey preparing to testify in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee about President Trump asking him privately to drop the FBI investigation. Lots to talk about, and we appreciate the fact that you are there with us. 
Uh, we want to hear from you and your comments on uh, all of the above. Give, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Talking mainly climate change today, uh, and John Cookett is the climate policy, global climate policy director uh, of the Great Sierra Club joining us in studio. John, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. All right. We want to go through this uh, Paris Accord and all the details of it and what it means to uh, stay in or stay out, uh, which we will do with you and with all of our listeners and viewers as well. But first, got to give it to Peter Ogburn here. Full court press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, this is a horrible story at the relatively new National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, On Wednesday, the Smithsonian said that they found a noose on the floor of a gallery about segregation. Museum staff and police shut the exhibit down for three hours. They're investigating the discovery of the noose. Now, last week, a noose was found hanging off of a tree outside the Hershorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. The African-American Museum was quick, again, to say that they have security measures in place. They have cameras, they search, and they have metal detectors all throughout the museum. But obviously a metal detector would not have captured or caught a noose. Uh, So they are going to find who this was because there are cameras everywhere. But what a horrible story. You know what makes me mad about this is that, you know, how hard it is to get into that museum. Yeah. Then you have to wait in line, you got to wait for the raft, whatever it is. This racist idiot went through all of those hoops yeah. and then left to freaking Just to do there. this. Just yeah. to do this. Just to do this. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Uh, Kathy Griffin, we saw posed for a controversial photo shoot. Also disgusting. Also disgusting, where she got in a lot of hot water. She apologized profusely, but that was not enough to save her job with CNN. They cut ties with her. She began co-hosting New Year's Eve coverage with Anderson Cooper back in 2007. And they said she will not be joining them this year. What was she thinking? You know, I'll say this. Well, she it's wasn't a, it's thinking. a very, very, very bad idea. Uh, but Kathy Griffin has made a career out of being edgy. And once you make a career out of being edgy, where is the line, right? You keep pushing the line I think farther she found and farther it. and farther back. <laughs> I think we found the line. And I this is how she stays relevant. It's true. I mean, She'll look. St- she won't go away. No, I don't think so. And uh, look, it's a bad idea and a bad move, but like, this is all she's got. This is what she does. So if you were a fan of Kathy Griffin, but this is too much for you, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> this is like... This is the only this is the only outcome you could have possibly hoped for. And in Florida, there is a state Senate election happening in September 26, and there might be a new representative. One person whose name is on the ballot is Christian Schlereth, but he's going on the ballot as He-Man. That is his name. It is his actual name. I'll take it. Yeah, he's an adjunct college professor. He's running as an independent, as you could probably imagine. Uh, and he is... Going to be on the ballot as He-Man. He-Man Schlereth. That's his... Any word on whether he'll face off against Vermin Supreme? (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite candidates of all time. Yeah, right? Vermin Supreme is the the greatest. So He-Man might, you know... We'll have to watch that one. Yeah. Is Bernie going to go down and campaign for him? Oh, I hope so. I On your radio, on TV, and online.
This is the Bill Press Show. What do you say, folks? Good to see you today on a Thursday. First day of June 2017. Can you believe it? Uh, And can you believe what is likely to happen today in the Rose Garden at 3 o'clock? Donald Trump tweeting out yesterday that he's going to announce today from the Rose Garden uh, his plans, his intentions on whether or not the United States will remain uh, a partner and a leader in the Paris Accords, which only took effect less than a year ago, November of 2016. John Cookett is the climate global, I get it wrong again, global climate policy director uh, at the Sierra Club, uh, joining us in studio. John, it's good to meet you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Uh, I've been a member of the Sierra Club for a long, long time, and um, thank you for leadership on so many issues, especially this one. And I don't think there's any important, more important issue. How did Paris come about, first of all? Well, Paris is the result of years of campaigns and work by government leaders, groups like mine, citizens around the world. Um, After the sort of failed result in Copenhagen, countries got back together and really pushed forward with a a new approach, a new treaty that would be aligned across the entire world, all countries joining the same accord. And so Paris was this historic step forward. Something like 120 heads of state showed up for the negotiations, completely Mm. unprecedented support. It was a giant celebration. All countries have signed up for the Paris Accord except two, Nicaragua and Syria. So, you know, a failed state. And Nicaragua is not on because they wanted it to be stronger. It's a protest non-vote. So in, in the end, Paris turned out to be this huge victory. And it brought a lot of countries together. And it, in the end, also, John Kerry and Barack Obama had a lot to do with Paris. Oh, absolutely. The the U.S. government worked incredibly hard to bring this together. They sent out their surrogates for years. The president himself elevated climate change to a top-tier diplomatic issue where it remains now. He raised it in every meeting with every head of state. And that's sort of how this all got pulled together. You know, he saw what, how things can go badly in Copenhagen, and he worked so hard to, to bring us the Paris Agreement. Um, the the uh, the number I wanted to ask you about the number because I I have seen 145 and 195, which yeah. is it? So there are two different different numbers because there are countries that signed on to the Paris Agreement, which is a relatively easy thing to do, and it's you know, roughly the head of state signing on. Yes, there yeah. was a big ceremony in New York yeah. um, shortly after the Paris Agreement was agreed to, and a whole bunch of countries, including the U.S. and China, and. Mm-hmm signed on. Um, the the smaller number is the countries that have ratified the deal, have gone through the entire political process in their country. That includes the U.S. Um, and a number of other countries. So, yes, there are two numbers. Um, the important thing is that the, Sierra, that the Paris Agreement is has been ratified. It is in force, and it went into force faster than any other uh, multilateral agreement, save for the original U.N. Charter. What does – first of all, it's a volunteer agreement, correct? Yeah, it's a bottom-up approach where countries pledge targets that are in their national interests and then strengthen them every five years. And and what does it require countries to do? It requires countries to submit what those actions are going to be and then report back on progress. And then there's a, there's a fair bit of uh, – Is there a goal that, that we will reduce CO2 emissions by – 
that each country will by 15% or 20%? Not each country. There's a collective set of goals that uh, limit global warming to 2 degrees um, Celsius rise above pre-industrial levels with an aspirational goal of 1.5 degrees. And then there's a there's um, a long-term goal of deep decarbonization that sort of points to more specific actions that would be taken by Is countries. there any evidence that countries are already um, – that, that they're observing this or they're taking action as a result of Paris Accord? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of evidence that countries are taking action. There's been reports on this, but the basic deal is that this has become – a top-tier diplomatic issue. Countries know how to do this. It's in their economic interest. A lot of countries that are struggling with pollution problems have moved very quickly to renewable energy. And countries like the the EU is in the process of putting together targets that are stronger than what they pledged through their parliamentary system. And the Chinese are in the process of establishing further um, programs beyond what they've pledged. Well, everybody laughs uh, at the idea that China and India are part of, not everybody, but some people laugh at the fact that China and India are part of this as proving that the, that the, that the pact is meaningless because China being the big polluter that he is, that it is, is, is just kind of making fun, you know, not taking this agreement no, seriously. No, that's a huge mistake. Um, both China and India have massive air pollution problems. Those problems yeah, are costing that. them yeah. um, huge they know, amounts of their GDP. Do they know this? Absolutely. Are they doing anything about it? They've undergone one of the largest efforts in the history of the world to put pollution control equipment on all of their power plants, but that's not enough given their populations. Mm-hmm. And so now they're in the process of building out the largest renewable energy systems the world has ever seen. China is going to build out a renewable energy system that's built bigger than the entire U.S. electric grid in the coming years. They're spending billions and billions of dollars on renewable energy every year, much more than the United States is. Well, it's interesting because last night on CNN, uh, Senator Ed Markey, uh, a great environmentalist, a great senator too, um, spoke about this, that what, but that for us to pull out, getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but for the United States to pull out will really give an economic advantage to China in this area. Here's uh, Senator Markey. Mm-hmm. There's no question that China would love it if we pulled out so that they could capture the electric vehicle market. They could capture the wind and solar market. They could capture all of these new technologies and wind up mm-hmm. with made in China on all of this equipment that we sold around the world for the entirety of the 21st century. That's a huge potential job uh, market here, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the industry of the future is clean tech. Yeah, and they would could dominate it. They, they already are. They already do. They are dominating to some degree, and they could do more. I manufacture mean, solar panels, I believe. Right? They're the huge manufacturer of solar panels. Although those are becoming more of a commodity, and other countries are are in mm-hmm. the market. There, um, they are very interested in electric vehicles because they have such an air pollution problem in their inner cities. And you know, I think that sky's the limit for China. They have an incredible manufacturing base and. They see this as in their national security interest, and they're moving forward as fast as they can. All right. So uh, can a country just pull out of the Paris Accords? Is that part of the agreement? If you, you, know, you volunteer to get in and you can leave anytime you want? Well, there are rules. 
rules that probably apply to this administration that you can't actually submit to leave the agreement until three years after it was went into effect. And it so went that's, into effect again, November 2016. Yeah, so they're two and a half years away from being able to announce that they're leaving formally within the system. And then after that, you have to wait a year until you can actually leave. So that puts them leaving right after the election in 2020. So what do you believe Donald Trump is going to, what do your sources tell you, what do you think uh, Donald Trump is going to do to, today? Well, that's a, a high-risk thing, guessing what the president <laughs> is going to do yeah, before is. he does it. it. I, I don't know that anyone knows that, but maybe him. Um, our expectation is that they're going to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, or at least announce their intention to withdraw mm-hmm. from the Paris Agreement. And, you know, they can send a handful of people to these discussions for the coming years and Those people can say the U.S. has no policy, which is what they had to do at the G7 and what they had to do at other, Mm -hmm. you know, there are meetings of the parties of the Paris Agreement. There was one in Germany recently, and that's what the State Department officials did. They said that the U.S. has no formal policy yet, and they're still working on that. And in the meantime, we will, you know, continue to uh, show up and explain what the government is doing, but they they couldn't actually do anything at negotiations. I agree with you. I believe that's what he's going to announce. This is a man who uh, uh, called it a bad deal in the first place as a candidate, promised he would pull out of it if he were ele- ever elected, and uh, called climate change a hoax invented by the Chinese. So, uh, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be surprised that he would make, reach this decision. If he follows through with it, if that's what he announces today, what is the impact on the United States? What is the impact on the planet? Well, the impact on the United States is going to be swift, immediate, and mostly diplomatic. Countries have been very clear that that this is an unacceptable turn for the United States to take. And they've been talking about different options. You know, whether countries will actually find themselves in a position where they impose some kind of trade sanctions on the U.S. I think is really unclear, but that's been discussed in Europe. Um, The Chinese and the Europeans are going to meet in a few days and reaffirm their interest in working together on climate change. So the U.S. will be isolated on an issue that was a global consensus and an issue where all countries were together. It was one of the places during the Obama administration while there were lots of tensions with countries like China and India, it was a place where we could get together and find common ground and find ways to work together. So if that's missing from the diplomatic talks, that's a, a big loss to this presidency. And to the country, right? And, and to the In country. Of- and, and I think what's left to be seen is what happens with countries' willingness to act as the U.S. continues to walk away. And don't forget that the U.S. was not only acting in the the Paris Agreement, but the U.S. was providing a lot of support, not financial support, but technical support, satellite data, all kinds of, there were all kinds of efforts started under the Obama administration to help countries address climate change. Mm -hmm. Those, Those are really important pieces, and they held up the entire international system. If the U.S. walks away from that, other countries will have to step and up. And in fact, President Obama signed this agreement with China, historic agreement with China, to work together on climate change. Is that part of the? I was just thinking, is that part of the Paris Accords? And or would that still exist? Or would Donald Trump pull out of that too? There are a number of bilateral agreements that exist on climate. I think the most important are the ones you're pointing out with China, and it's completely unclear where the U.S. is on any of that. Hmm. Where we are on our continued support 
for clean energy around the world, where we are on um, you know, using our, our different international financial institutions to address um, the, this crisis around the world. This administration is so understaffed, and they spend so much of their time fighting and dealing with crises that we really don't know what their plan is on a whole host of issues that are important. Well, uh, I know that, um, uh, and this is one thing that message the Sierra Club has been very clear about, is that global warming is not some problem that we have to worry about in the future. Right? I mean, it's here. Oh, it's absolutely now, here. And, I think and it's real. What, what's the evidence of that? Well, the the main evidence start, I is guess. is the you know growing pollution in the atmosphere. We you know we see that going up and up and up every year. And the you know basic chemistry is pretty straightforward. But the the problems that people are living with already are the extreme weather events that are growing more frequent. Sea level rise is starting to cause major problems. Um, one place in particular where you see this is in, in Miami, which now on king tides floods with it from the sewer system up, and you get a foot of water in downtown Miami. So there are on ongoing a, problems. On a normal day. I mean, on a, that, a sunny day when, yeah, when yeah. the tides are high. So this is, this is a problem that, that lots of people are dealing with. In fact, um, one of the more interesting ones is the, the ongoing challenges in Alaska is the permafrost melts and the... Um, sea ice recedes. These communities are having to be moved back. And to the mainland. To from, the mainland. Yeah. yeah. And what you see is, um, you know, a Republican senator complaining about this and simultaneously supporting efforts to derail climate, even though she understands that this is a major problem to her state. Melting permafrost, you know, causes the roads to completely crumble and the whole system falls apart in Alaska. Uh, I mean, yeah. And I... <laughs> I said this earlier. You know, you think about, well, this, these remote uh, islands in the Pacific you hear about, might some of them have disappeared, all right? Yeah. right? So, so what? That's so far away. But Alaska is, that's us, right? That's part of the United States. That's already being observed there. Um, in, in terms of um, crops and wildlife and, I mean, have we seen any signs of that yet? I'm there's a lot of signs on wildlife that are incredibly disturbing. Um, a few years ago, the, the IPCC, the main global scientific body that reviews the impacts of climate change, suggested that half the species in the world would be um, at risk of extinction because of climate change in the not-too-distant future. And I remember the, I was at those meetings, and watching the governments respond to that, they you know, basically raised their flags and said, you know, how many of those species have been, you know, actually evaluated for this? How much is just models? And they said all of them. It was an incredible exchange between the governments and the scientists. This climate change puts everybody at risk, and it puts all of our systems in the U.S. at risk and, and globally. And we need to plan for that, and it needs to be something that's mainstreamed into our government's thinking. Is it too late? Well, it's never too late because global warming can always be worse. It's, you know, becoming too late to avoid, well, it's, it's too late to avoid impacts of climate change. And yeah. it's becoming too late to avoid what we used to think of as dangerous climate change. But things get worse and worse at higher levels of warming. You get very large sea level rise. You get very big changes to the climatic system. And those are what needs you know, people need to focus on now. Uh, obviously, countries have started to take action, and the, the, 
The hope is that we've really bent the curve on the future warming, but we're a long ways away from being in a place where we're anywhere near having solved this problem. So the best we can do, you're saying, right, is to mitigate the damage or to or to have not as much damage as we would otherwise have if we continue down the road we are now. Which yeah, absolutely. We've put so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that there's going to be warming. The question is only how much and how severe are the are the damages going to be. What's the or how do you assess the economic impact of well? Now, for example, you know I I heard saw yesterday and I was on CNN myself with the Trumpers were saying, well, this is going to I mean. This climate change, uh, Paris, is, is going to cost the United States 6 million jobs. We will save 6 million jobs if we pull out of the climate accord, based on absolutely nothing. But how, how do you assess the jobs or economic impact of uh, if we were to pull out or if, and, and, and looking at what the effects of climate change may be on coastal communities, et cetera? Well, those, those costs are staggering. Um, there have been a number of reports done both internationally and by a coalition that includes um, former secretaries of uh, um, – anyway, of, um, there have been a number of studies yeah. that have been done domestically. Yeah. Mayor Bloomberg was a big part of those. And the numbers, even just for New York City, are staggering. Um, the numbers yeah. nationally I mean, are staggering. New York City. New York City, like Miami, may not, may not be as low as Miami, but – Pretty much, right? Yeah, Look all, what happened in Sa Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, the tunneling systems, the you know supports, the you know as sea level rise gets large, um, very you know extreme action needs to be taken. You know, when people see renderings of what might need to do, they get upset because they you know see how disruptive and ugly all of that is going to be. A world with uh, substantial warming is is not a pretty place for many many of the large cities that have been established in the in the world. And I think that's why you see some of those coastal cities leading on action. You see both L.A. and Atlanta have said that they're going to go to 100 percent renewable energy for their communities. So you do see those cities understanding the, the danger. It's in Miami you see a bipartisan support for addressing climate change because they're so at risk. But for most of the country, this issue is a very polarizing issue, and it's it's really hampered our ability to – proceed with common sense solutions. Uh, uh, you know, you just wonder uh, how many streets of Miami have to be lost or how many how, how, how far up Manhattan does it have to go or uh, how many Hilton heads have to be right shut down before people say, hmm, we got a problem on our hands, you know? I mean, it's, it's a classic example of no one's going to pay real attention to it until it's too late. I shouldn't say no one, but the, like yeah. politicians that can really make a difference. Like it's going to be too late. We're going to get to a point where we can't fix it. Yeah, and sea level rise in particular happens very slowly after all of the greenhouse gases are put up in the atmosphere. So, you know, once you start that process of melting the major ice caps, it it's you know a slow moving train wreck, and and moving communities away from the oceans is no small task. Not to mention our naval bases. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, that's why you see a lot of interest, especially in Virginia, in dealing with this problem around Hampton Roads. And people do understand the challenges. People have been measuring the tides for a long time, and they understand that they're rising, and they understand what that means for their communities. 
But, uh, you know, there's just a lot of willful ignorance. And, of course, right now it starts at the top with the president. So have you had any uh, any dealings with the Pentagon? I know the, <clears throat> the Pentagon has said that global warming is real and it's a threat to our national security. Yeah, they've been consistent on that for some time, starting in the Bush administration. And the new director of national intelligence put out his recent threat assessment and basically concluded that as well. The climate change is threat multiplier that makes the world less safe. Um, actually, the current uh, Secretary of Defense agrees with that assessment as well. Most of the generals in this administration understand that climate change is a challenge that needs to be addressed. It's really the political side and, you know, worst of all, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt. Right. Uh, a man who was put there, basically, this was his mission, correct? Well, yeah. whether he was installed to have this mission <laughs> or brought it in on his own, he's clearly on a mission to undermine basic public health um, standards and particularly to go after all of the initiatives on climate change. So uh, where are the American people on this? Well, we have the American people on our side. There was a recent poll done by Yale University, and they found that there was support for the Paris Agreement in every single state. A majority of Americans support the Paris Agreement. People really like when governments get together and work together to solve a problem. It's, there's a long history globally of solving really big challenges that way. I mean, we think of the end of World War II, solving the hole in the ozone layer. I mean, this is how countries work together to solve things is through these treaties. And so this is a very popular um, agreement. And um, going against it, attacking it in this way is going to be unpopular in the United States. So we mentioned uh, Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. Another voice from Massachusetts we heard from yesterday, um, maybe unusual on a national issue like this, is the mayor of Boston. Uh, there's no doubt when you hear Marty Walsh where he comes from. Marty. Marty. Marty Walsh. Here he is yesterday. A little word of warning. It will damage our reputation as an international leader. It will undermine our country's commitment to meeting the challenges that, of climate change. And Mayor Walsh said yesterday, basically, uh, you can do whatever you want, Donald Trump. We're not going to change. Uh, and you look, so you look, my question is, to what extent can cities and states, look, I'm from California. I worked for Jerry Brown. Jerry's a friend of mine. You know, Jerry's the leader in climate change among the governors. Uh, to, to what extent can governors, state legislatures, mayors resist this? Oh, I think they can do a tremendous amount. I, I think that there will be leadership in the United States on climate change. It's going to come from Jerry Brown. It's going to come from New York State. It's going to come from a number of states that are currently considering additional policies. But it also comes from surprising places. I mean, we've seen... With Sierra Club, we've been working really hard for the last several years to shut down coal plants, working with companies, working with the local communities, working with the impacted workers. And we've seen 250 coal plants announced for retirement over the past few years. This is a trend that's not going to be reversed. It's moving very quickly. Are they quickly. coming back? They are not coming back. In fact, seven. Donald Trump says they're coming back. Seven really large, seven, six companies have announced the retirement of seven really large power or coal plants since the Trump was elected. The largest coal plant that's ever been announced for retirement in the United States was announced after the election in Ohio. This, these plants are uneconomic, 
Clean energy solutions are making them uneconomic. They have, they're old, and they have large legacy pollution problems. And it makes sense to move on. And that's what's happening all over the country. That's why you don't see a lot of electric utility support for pulling out of Paris. Those companies understand that it's time to transition. And they don't want to be forced to operate these old coal plants. In fact, Massachusetts just yesterday closed its very last coal plant. The, hmm. the, so now Massachusetts is coal-free. And, and this is what you're seeing all through New England. There's a wave of states retiring their last coal plants. And, and that's one thing that maybe people don't understand is that this is not a case where the, 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 the environmentalists are uh, uh, on the opposite the corp- big corporations, at least not across the board. There are a lot of big corporations who support the Paris Accord, including – Oh, Exxon yeah. Mobil, Exxon right? Mobil, but you know, Exxon Mobil maybe was taking a more pragmatic view. But there was yeah. real support from Google and Walmart and Apple, and you know, you see mm-hmm. this broad support. Especially, you know, we even had support for the Paris Agreement from the coal companies. The publicly owned coal companies said we should stay in as well. There's there's very broad support for this agreement, and. Part of that was because there's a a seat at the table for those non-state actors in the Paris Agreement. They were part of pushing this forward in Paris. They have fond memories of how this came together and why it's important for their bottom line. And a lot of these companies are switching to renewable energy because it's saving and it eliminates all of the financial risk of, you know, rising and and falling natural gas prices. So you had everybody online except Steve Bannon and Scott Pruitt. Yeah, that's probably an oversimplification, but it's awfully close, and it's yeah. frighteningly close to you know basically what happened here. Obviously, there's some outside lobbying forces, right. Murray Energy, the mm-hmm. uh, the coal company, and you you see you know a lot of pressure from CEI and others. Some of the people who originally went into the mm. Environmental Protection Agency before Scott Pruitt was named, but yes, it's a very small group of climate deniers well, who have pushed the president in this direction. We're going. We're about. I'm afraid we're about to see uh, the worst possible decision Donald Trump could make that he would make today and announce today from the Rose Garden. John Cookett, thank you so much on behalf of all of us Sierra Club members and beyond for all the leadership, all the work that you're doing on this issue. Of course, it's sierraclub.org, and if you're not already a member, uh, you should become one. It's important for the planet. The Donald Trump budget and its impact on all of us, especially federal employees. President J. David Cox from the American Federation of Government Employees joins us next. Thanks, John, for coming in. Mr. President, please listen to the Pope, listen to the scientists, listen to your national security advisor. Please stay in the agreement. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Hey, here we are on the first day of June uh, 2017. How about it? It's the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital, our studio on Capitol Hill, just down the street from the United States Capitol Building. And we're looking at you on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Also joining you on Free Speech TV, coast to coast. And out in the great Chicago area, all over Chicago and the suburbs on WCPT. 
uh, coming on, coming to you on as many levels as we can, and we are very grateful that you join us this morning to talk about the big news of the day. And we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, the good men and women of the AFGE, those men and women who keep our uh, federal agencies running day in and day out, serving the American public and proud to do so. We count on them. They never let us down under the leadership of, oh, look who's here, President hey. J. David Cox of the AFGE. <laughs> President Cox, it's good to see you. Oh, good to be with you, Bill. Brother J. David, yeah, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. These are crazy times, aren't uh, they? I mean, first of all, I have to say, you know, uh, people sometimes call me a uh, – a lefty or a progressive or pretty far left, but it's always nice to meet somebody who's even more liberal, more progressive than I am. <laughs> and that's a man sitting That has right a up. southern voice. Yeah. <laughs> with a southern voice, yeah, absolutely. You make us all proud, right? Uh, uh, no. Uh, these are t- tough times. Uh, these are tough times. It's uh, very tough times for federal employees, but most of all, it's going to be tough times for American citizens. Uh, when you look at uh, the president's proposed budget, and it's proposed, thank God for that, but uh, it's it's trashing and burning uh, programs. It's wiping out uh, a large portion of the Environmental Protection Agency, Agriculture, Department of Interior, uh, National Endowments for the Arts, Humanities, the list goes on Even and the on. St- State Department. The State Department, National Institute of Health. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, the people that's doing the research uh, that uh, save lives, uh, that that finds the cures or or at least improves the quality of disease processes where it's not as tough on people. Uh, But, yeah, trashing and burning. We, uh, a couple of days ago, sitting right where you are, was President uh, Lily Eskelson-Garcia, uh, president of the NEA, who is pointing out the, the deep, deep cuts in public education uh, under the Trump budget. And if you don't educate people, you've doomed them to a life of poverty. Uh, hey, I went to public schools. Thank God I went to public schools, received a great education. I went to a community college, uh, then continued on from there in a, a state-supported schools. Uh, and that investment that the government made in me, I'm returning it 10,000-fold, as most people are. And so you invest in people. You educate people. But this budget is it's going to be tough on federal employees, Bill. It's going to cut back $149 billion from the $182 billion that federal employees have already given up for deficit reduction. It's uh, also calling for a a BRAC, you know, a realignment of military bases in 2021, calling for the reinstitution of A-76, which is the contracting out process, which always costs the taxpayers more money when the government contracts out at a yeah. less service, um, greater cost to the taxpayers. Right. I mean, if you look at we've ta- – you've talked about so many um, institutions and individuals, organizations, um, a lot of – as Lily Eskelson Garcia put it, he – Cuts what is working and gives money to what's not working, basically. But among the, all the people impacted, federal employees under this proposed Trump budget are impacted as much, if not more, than anybody else, aren't they? I mean, they're the real you, – your members are the re, and others, the real target. They, they're real targets. It uh, 
uh, cuts out all future cost of living adjustments for federal retirees. Uh, also, it does away with the first supplemental, which certainly hits our law enforcement members. At age 57, by law, they're required to retire. They can't work even if they choose to continue to work in so, law So enforcement. these are prison guards? These are uh, yeah, uh, correctional officers, guards, correction. border patrol agents, ICE agents, really? all of those. Uh, yes. At 57. At 57, but it cuts out the first supplemental, which uh, is – it was designed to carry those employees from age 57 till they would be Social Security eligible at age 62. At age 62, you can't draw it. But no, trash and burn that. It's all about cutting back on uh, the little people. And we're talking about very modest pensions, very, very modest. I was going to ask you about that because um, some people live under the impression that bureaucrats in general, if you will, or federal employees or state employees, city employees – you know, are living high on the hog, right? Get these big, big salaries and these massive pensions, and uh, and we're all taxpayers are paying for it. What's, what's the reality? The reality: my wife just retired February twenty eighth from thirty years in the Department of Veterans Affairs as a GS eleven, which is a very reasonable, good uh, middle class working grade, and her retirement is $1,500 a month. Now, that's not a lot of money. How many years? 30, uh, 30 years, 1500 a month. I know personally, hey, uh, it, it was in her bank account this morning because it yeah. happens on the first day of the month. So, no, $1,500 a month. So, yes, the Cox family can tell you, 30 years of her life, uh, and that was part of her compensation package. Federal employees gave up cost of living adjustments through the years to have retirement. It's a very small amount of retirement. So um, it doesn't sound like she's going to be joining Mar-a-Lago? No, no. (laughs) Trust me, uh, I am sure uh, as soon as she gets uh, tired of uh, playing with grandchildren, she'll be hunting probably a part-time job. Uh, yes, because that's not enough money to uh, to certainly uh, uh, live a lavish life. That's that's uh, it, we're yeah, thankful for can, that retirement, but yeah. that's not a large retirement. Deal. You can even you know continue in your in your home and that's exactly and, right. And have any benefits, maybe one little week of vacation or something here at that rate. But and and uh, and not everybody's a G eleven. No, no. There are a lot of people that make much less than that. A, a GS-11 uh, would probably make between sixty-five dollars and $70,000 a year. So that's that's a higher uh, rate of pay. Most of our uh, membership uh, averages around $50,000 a year in AFGE. Right. You know, it's interesting, though, that, that you said that these law enforcement people would be a bit, kind of on the one of the groups that's on the front lines of Donald Trump's budget cuts, and yet to hear him talk. Right. He's always saying he's the friend of the cops. He's a friend of the Border Patrol. He wants more. He's a friend of, you know, across the board, pretends to be that. And yet the reality is he's stabbing him in the back. He, he is uh, cutting back and it's definitely going to harm our law enforcement uh, members. Again, it's a it's a job you can't do forever. And there's reasons why people are required to retire at age 57 in law enforcement. Uh, but at the same token, uh 
That's why they need that first supplemental. That's the reason it was put into the law to get them to that uh, retirement age of Social Security. And then at age 62, it goes away, whether you choose to draw your Social Security at that point or not. But it, it was designed to uh, to work that way. But uh, this is a, a real uh, slap in the face to law enforcement uh, by, for the president to propose this. And this is Trump's budget. Paul Ryan's budget will be 100 times worse. Really? Yes. I, well, that's where I was going next is what what uh, reaction or reception do you anticipate for Trump's budget on the Hill? Well, uh, there are those that say it's dead on arrival, uh, many of the things that he's proposed. But when it comes to federal employees, it never seems to be dead on arrival. <laughs> yeah, right. We are right. the ones that always uh, take the blunt in. And people forget most federal employees don't live here in the D.C. area. The 85 percent of them are all over the country. Uh, we're in virtually every zip code in the country. Uh, and, and we're out there doing great services. Yeah, we are protecting borders, caring for veterans, inspecting the food, uh, screening passengers at airports, uh, uh, providing a great service to the American people. That's a very important point, which most people do. I mean, if you think about the federal government or you think about federal employees, everybody thinks right away, Washington, D.C., right? That's right. Downtown, the federal buildings, right? Downtown Washington, D.C. Uh, and yet you say 85 percent. Are not here. Are outside of the Beltway. I mean, just that's, look. That's, the, the, that's, the, that's stunning. The Department in, of in Defense every, is all yeah. over the country. In in cities large and small, right? Yes. You've got, right, I'm just thinking of all the national parks, all the agencies, TSA, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. It's uh, it, These are just going to be tough times. This budget, uh, I think it... It sets the agenda of how the president feels about his workers and about government services, but also about uh, the American people. Again, uh, the federal employees provide the services. They process Social Security claims. They they process uh, uh, veterans' uh, disability claims, uh, provide the health care. They do these things. A, a person has to make this happen. It doesn't just miraculously take place. And if there's not a worker making it happen, then the service won't exist, and the American public will feel that pain. Yeah. No, that's another reality, which, again, people don't reflect on. Yeah. I want my Social Security check. But I want to cut back on those federal employees. Well, you can't have it, right? You can't have it both ways. Well, right? uh, he, the president's proposing. I want those planes to fly safely with all those aircraft. Right. Yeah, but I want to cut back on the federal employees, right? It doesn't work that way. It won't work. He's also, I think, proposing to cut back on uh, Social Security disability uh, uh, payments. Uh, and uh that's part of Social Security. No one has the guarantee that they won't become disabled. Uh, that's just how the process works. That's uh, while we have Social Security. I've shared with you on several occasions. My father died when I was six, and thank God for Social Security. Helped my mother to be able to raise my brother and I. Uh, that's that's the way it happens. That's uh, the purpose of Social Security to take care of us in our old age and to provide for those emergencies that occur in people's lives, disability or loss of a parent. When you look at the federal workforce, what, what, is, what is the largest percentage of, of federal employees? Are they in law enforcement? Or are they, uh, uh, or? The largest percentage of federal employees work in the Department of Defense. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the largest group that's under But one, they're not all military, right? They're not. Oh, none of them are military. This oh, is civil, oh, uh, so, civilian, civil yeah. service employees work in the Department of Defense, but they are in many different uh, operations for Department of Defense. The largest group of federal employees, I would say, under one roof is in the VA. Uh, because the VA is the largest single uh, department uh, when it comes to being basically under one roof of operations, either the medical center side or the benefits side. But in uh, DOD, you've got Army, you've got Navy, you've got uh, so many various uh, entities, uh, and the operations is so vast. And uh, the president's calling for a large increase in the Department of Defense budget, but it's still... uh, we're not seeing that that increases the number of employees, uh, civilian employees. It's mostly for contract workers uh, and to increase in political paybacks. It's for also for big, uh, for big new toys, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, as I hear you guys talk about this, the thing that keeps coming into my head is Donald Trump ran for president. One of his big pros, as, as he would describe it, is that he's a businessman. And there were a lot of people that said, you know, a businessman might not necessarily make the best president. I think we're seeing that play out because businessmen and people who run large businesses, I mean, they really are in it. A lot of them are in it for the bottom line and they're in it to make money and they don't really consider the workers. They don't consider the people that help them make money. Right. And we're really this this budget, I think, reflects that in a really big way, because we're talking about defense contractors. We're talking about, uh, you know not helping out workers, not helping out people. And uh, I, I think that, like, if you look at this budget, you see that that's absolutely the case. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that there are workers that make companies great. Now, and uh, federal employees make the government work and, right, and right. make so, it happen. Absolutely. And I, he, I, don't, I just I don't understand the process. Uh, it's just amazing to me. Uh, and it's um, – Frequently, people want to beat up on federal employees, but yet uh, let the government shut down and everyone wants government services. They forget uh, they need their passports uh, to travel out of the country, and government supplies that. Uh, Government does so many good things, but uh, people forget it. Drugs are being stopped on the border now. Terrorism is being stopped. Uh, This country continues to be safe because government and government workers do it. You mentioned that the the Veterans Administration is one of the largest uh, uh, employee groups uh, in the federal government because it's a government health care program, basically. You know, there have been problems at the, the, the Veterans Administration. Have they started to turn around? And what is the quality of health care that the veterans are getting at the VA hospitals? The quality of health care at the VA hospitals is still the best health care system in this country. And by the way, you, you started out as a nurse I, in that Yes, system, I did. I worked, yeah, right. I worked for the VA for many years. My wife worked for the VA. My daughter-in-law is a registered nurse at the VA. The list goes on. We're proud to work for the VA. However, uh, concerns with the VA at this point. Yesterday, Secretary Shulkin, as we've been talking about there's 45,000 vacancies for health care providers at the VA what? today. 45,000 vacancies that Congress has appropriated the money, so there's not a question that they can hire. But the secretary said he was more interested in firing 
employees than he was hiring and filling the 45,000 vacancies. So if there are 45,000 vacancies, that means that there are a lot of veterans who are not getting the care that they need because the health professional is not on the job. That's the problem. That is a big, big problem. We need to be focusing on hiring and filling these vacancies. And for the secretary to say that's not his priority, uh, I have to disagree with the secretary. That needs to be his number one priority. Congress gave him, appropriated the money. Yeah. It's not a question of I need it, but Congress hasn't appropriated These doctors, nurses, these yes. are health professionals. Yes, health are- professionals. 45,000, and that number is his number, not my number. That's the number he uses frequently over and over. It's just stunning to think that they would have that, that, first of all, that need, and then they'd have the resources to fill that need and not be doing it. Not be doing it. And think again of the unserved public that's not being served by that obstinacy. I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, it's uh, I, it's a backdoor way to try to contract out the VA, and I'm so proud that all mm. of the veteran service organizations stand so firmly that, hey, veterans want their care at the VA. They want to receive that care at the VA. The VA has opportunities for improvement, and certainly that's a leadership problem in many instances throughout the VA. Uh, and the secretary certainly needs to work aggressively with his leaders and fix those problems, but he needs to be uh, certainly on a, a, a hiring spree to fill these 45,000 vacancies. And the problems of the long waiting list and uh, that we, you know, a couple of years ago that President Obama faced, have they been... We have seen those waiting lists go down uh, because there has been some increased staffing. There's been other rearranging where well, they extend hours, have done things. They, but they might go down faster if they could fill if, these positions. If we would fill those vacancies, we would see those waiting lists go down. We would see the men and women who have so bravely served this country receive the health care that they deserve. And I'm a person that believes that every veteran that has served this country honorably has paid their health insurance premiums in full for the rest of their lives. When you think about it, the VA hospital really is a um, single-payer system, isn't it? It definitely is. No question about it. And it's uh, it's single-payer. Wait. It's single-payer and it works. And it's run by the government. And it's run by the government. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they talk about Canada or talk about, right, the UK or whatever. I mean, we've got it right here. It's uh, a fully integrated health care system. It's not It's not just the fact that you get your health care. We, we, if you need your educational benefits, your other benefits, uh, there's the, the social workers, the nutritionists, uh, all of the, the factors, the pharmacists. Uh, we, we don't just give you a prescription and say, now, you need to take this medicine. The VA fills the prescription also. Frequently, people go to a doctor, but they still don't have the money to buy the medicines with, or they don't have the money to go get the other type of diagnostic treatment or or uh, rehab treatment, physical therapy, other things. So, yeah, the VA does that, and the VA is such a, a leader in health care in this country. And is it, bottom line, working? It's working. It's Meaning, you know, in terms of economically, is it an economic yes. model? Then yes. Why the hell didn't we take 
Why didn't Barack Obama take VA hospital and say, here, here this is work. We're just going to do this across the board instead of this Mickey Mouse Obamacare? I can't answer that question. It's uh, uh, We have health care designed by the Congress of the United States. And by a so, committee. Yeah. yeah right. I know a very large committee yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's all influenced by a, a political motivation. So uh, it's all over the map. But uh, health care is a right in a country this great, not a privilege. It is a right. We have to provide health care for folks. Uh, it's It costs this country a lot less money to treat people, to keep them healthy, to have regular examinations, uh, treat their illnesses, give them their medicines, uh, keep their blood pressure down than it is to deal with a catastrophe after it's happened of a heart attack, a stroke, or other illnesses. So, um, yeah, it, uh, health care is important, and our country has got to deal with it. Uh, you know, I just I never thought of that during this Obamacare battle, but we have an example, again, right under our noses of something that works that we did just didn't. well uh, you know we Maybe talk about we... obamacare but wait till people experience oh, yeah. trump no care oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> no that's right with all the problems of obamacare which we know and we've talked about some of those it's certainly not a perfect system gets us closer to universal coverage than we've ever been before but the insurance companies and pharmaceuticals are still too much in charge but you're right trump no care will be uh yeah, that'll be that'll be the shocker. That the, a big shocker. You, uh, President Cox, have been very active also in uh, North Carolina. I wanted to ask you about that because, uh, you know, Peter and I we went down to North Carolina. We were there at one of the uh, uh, bringing the mountain to uh, Asheville. Yeah, man. Right uh, with Reverend Barber. Yes, but you, you've been down there. Right in the heart of the, in the belly of the beast, and even got arrested. And I've spent been some time. to jail with Reverend Barber. Yes, I'm proud yeah. that I've been to jail with Reverend Barber. That what's, is a badge of honor. Just have about a, a minute. But what's the movement uh, going on down there? Uh, I, there continues to be movement. Uh, Reverend Barber's been leading sit-ins for health care at the the state legislative building and uh, marches. And people in North Carolina are certainly uh, uh, getting on the move. Uh, at least the Supreme Court. Court uh, yeah. uh, upheld the ruling right. that uh, right. that they had gerrymandered the districts, and that I believe uh, the exact words was by surgical per- precision. precision. Yeah, let me get right. the word right. Had had you know cut out uh, minorities and, and uh, discriminated against their ability to vote. Yeah. If only the state legislature down there would get the message. At least we've got a good another a good governor in there now. President J. David Cox, thanks for your leadership on so many issues and for coming in today. Keep up the good fight. Thank you much, Bill. And go to afge.org, and you can find out more about the Trump budget, how you can help, and how we can prevent that disaster. Have a great day, folks. We'll be looking for you tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, there are several words to describe what we expect to be Donald Trump's decision to drop out of the Paris Accords. Insane, ill-considered, unwise, dangerous, childish. Yeah, it's also Donald Trump. Bad for the United States for a couple of reasons. First, because This is a deal that took decades to put together with the United States taking the lead. We got 195 countries to sign on. 
and then we drop out seven months after it takes effect, makes us look like international flakes. Second, because not reversing climate change will have disastrous impacts on our environmental economy, national security, and human health. We already see signs that climate change is here, flooding every day in the streets of Miami. Communities in Alaska forced to relocate because of rising sea levels. 16 of the hottest 17 years on record occurring since 2001, already having an impact on crops and on wildlife, on livestock and storm activity and national security. Yep, the Pentagon calls climate change one of the most serious national security challenges facing this country. 97% of the world's scientists, in fact, tell us that climate change is the single most serious problem facing humankind. So why would Donald Trump pull out of the Paris Climate Accords? Well, his supporters say it's because of his base. After all, this is what he promised to do during the campaign and he can't disappoint his base. Well, guess what? I got to tell you, I care more about my kids and my grandkids than I do about Donald Trump's stupid face. This is The Bill Press Show.